Have the jury reached a verdict on which they are all agreed? Yes, we have. Do they find the defendant guilty or not guilty of murder? Guilty. I'm not guilty by association. I'm not guilty. Hello everyone and welcome to our new podcast. We are Jemba, joint enterprise, not guilty by association. This is our first episode in which we speak to our founding mothers, Gloria Morrison and Jane Cunliffe, about how they started Jemba and all their thoughts around things joint enterprise. Sorry about the sound quality in parts, but we didn't really want to stop these amazing women in full flow. Uh, our theme music is by a very talented goddess. Please go and check her out on various social medias. And if you need any more information on Joint Enterprise, go to our website, www.jointenterprise.co. And now, over to Ava. Welcome to the Jengba podcast. Um, exciting first new episode today. We have the founders of Jengba joining us. Um, so we have Jan and Gloria. Um, so lovely to have you guys on the podcast. Um, so let's dive in with the first question. Um, what was your motivation to start Jengba and when did you start? Hi, it's Gloria Morrison here. Um, actually, the motivation to start Jengba was absolutely when I met Jane Cunliffe. We met for a cup of tea at, um, in Leeds, univer- uh, not the university, in Leeds. We met because we'd been talking on the phone, but we hadn't met. And uh, a panorama was made about... Um, Jan's son's case, Jordan Cunliffe, and uh, the judge had put a gagging order on, on the fact that Jordan was blind. So the panorama switched over to my best son's best friend's case, uh, Kenneth Alexander. And the producer of that, that panorama suggested that Jan and I met. So when we did, and she told me about Jordan's case, um, we both sort of said, will this, because I'd just been in isolation with London cases and just thinking that you know, this was a, a really odd law, but when she told me that, you know, her 15-year-old son had been convicted, even though he didn't touch the victim or even see the victim, we just both said, well, I think we need some kind of campaign. So uh, that was actually in 2009. We didn't launch the campaign until the panorama was shown at the end of 2009. And then um, somebody who'd seen that program was interested in in Ken's case and... Uh, wanted to meet me so yeah it was it's very it was it's a very organic campaign it's just came out of me basically um but we launched fish officially in 2010 Liverpool and by that point we um don't even know how we contacted 160 but oh we put an advert in inside time saying had you been convicted of joint enterprise and we had 160 replies so uh, it's always been about supporting the prisoners from day dot, really, because when we launched the campaign, we released 160 balloons, red balloons, into the into the off the Liverpool docks, and and 40 white ones to the prisoners. We still hadn't uh, contacted us, and now we're up to over a thousand prisoners. Yeah, <clears throat> does that sound fair? Yeah, Dan? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, before before I met Gloria. Um, obviously, I, I did. I've been in touch with Panorama from from Jordan's case being at trial because they they were watching it unfold and clearly saw there was something a bit weird going on. Um, <clears throat> and, I, and and like Gloria said, we thought it was going to be about Jordan's case. I mean, I mean, for me personally, I kept going um, into the mix that 
they clearly must be doing this to other people. It can't just be a mistake. And I was explaining the, the, how the law was, was work, how it had worked with Jordan. Um, and obviously, fortunately, they went, they went out looking for other cases because I was adamant there was got to, there had to be other cases. And I had it in my head that because they used the gang, they said they my in my son's trial they said they were a gang and you know making out sort of th that they were a proper criminal gang and, and I just did, it didn't make sense. And the, and I came away thinking, God, this is what they must use against the black boys in London. You know, when you read about it in the newspaper and you. You, 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 they say this gang of, of, of black youths have, have committed this crime and they've all got sentenced to life. Um, it kind of made sense then that everything I was reading um, wasn't exactly how, how, how I thought it was. And, and, and because I've been to a trial and seen them do exactly the same to my son, to five white boys in Cheshire, uh, the same kind of gang narrative and the same kind of, obviously the same ta tactics, um, I just knew for a fact that this is what they were doing to kids in London and it, and it couldn't possibly be right. So I was so glad that um, the producer met, met Gloria. And they... For me, meeting Gloria was, was, was pivotal, really, because up until that point, um, I was going to kind of meet other people, you know, innocent projects up and down the country, writing letters, that kind of thing. And there was, there was always a look of dismay on people's faces as if I was you know making it up making it up you know because I just I just wanted everyone to believe that my son's case was was a perfect example of a, of a miscarriage of justice but um and it didn't say and everything I said didn't sound plausible until I met Gloria of course and then you know she was saying exactly the same thing as I was saying but about Ken and obviously the other cases that Gloria had come in touch with in London um we were all singing from the same hymn sheet really and I think it was that that's what I mean Panorama springboarded the campaign out there um and 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 came from two different sides of the country which meant this was a national problem not just just a one-off it was it was something that was happening up and down the country and it needed to be tackled and I think both me and Gloria uh, were angry enough um and cared enough to actually want to do something about it that that sounds like an amazing journey it's quite nice that you it's like from um, like it came from the heart of like motherhood as well so it's really sweet to have that um connection from the very um like kind of beginning of it all um so going to the second question um did you did, any, did both of you have any campaigning experience before Jengba and what what form did you what form how what <clears throat> kind of form did it did your early campaigning kind of take when you first started? Um, I don't think I had any campaigning experience. I'd never started a campaign. I didn't really. I mean, working class West London, quite political family, but not political with a big P. We were just, uh, you know, interested in sort of local issues and stuff like that, but not, not you know, I, I often say, I say in talks, I think I was sleepwalking before. We started Jengba because I thought we had a really good justice system and I thought people who went to prison deserved to go to prison. And um, and now I think completely the opposite. I think we've probably got one of the worst justice systems, you know, definitely in Europe. But, um, and I think our prisons are, are, are shambolic and, and not fit for purpose. So, um, yeah, before, before Jengba, I, I didn't have any campaigning experience at all, but I don't know about Jan. Um, no, not really. I mean, if, if, if I'd ever been involved with a campaign, it'd be, it would have been so low level. It, it would have, in, in comparison to what we do now, 
it 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 would look foolish to even mention it. You know, stuff stuff like campaigning because there was no zebra crossing outside of the school and stuff like that. Nothing nothing major. I mean, I, I used to I used to write a lot of letters to the council because the the bushes were too tall and it looked dangerous when people were crossing the road, and that was about all it was. You know, just really basic um basic stuff really so no 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 experience i think i think what where me and gloria come from as well is we 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 might just be working class women but we are intelligent and and i think if we if if either of us has shown that something's wrong i think because we are intelligent women we will unpick it and we will do something about it i've just never me personally has never been thrown a challenge like this so i've never been able never had to challenge something this big but I think both of us have got it in our blood. We just we were just never given a challenge this big before. That's crazy that the um, campaign is like it defines you as a person as well. It's it's not it's not like a kind of it's a personal. It's a very very personal, and it comes from the heart. So it's kind of like I think anyone who reads into it, who talks or tries to like you know get more understanding of it, will understand it. It really does come from the heart, and it is about like fighting for people that you love and the miscarriage of justice so I think that's the depth of it all and that's the foundation so I think that's a really beautiful thing um which kind of leads to the next question um has there been any conflict or hard stops during the campaigning years and do you mind like kind of explaining how you have like overcome them as a team I think there's been lots of uh not necessarily conflict I mean there has been obstacles and one of the things that we've had to do over the years is absolutely um safeguard ourselves like um no major decisions ever made that's run by this four core of us myself and jan are sort of the two front men of the campaign as it were but there are two sort of in the background that any major decisions always made by all four of us and that has been a, a really good model for um, unity and, and trust and, um, and, and with all things like any grassroots campaign that's, um, that's channeling, well, tackling the, the criminal justice system or the legal establishment, we, will, we have been thrown you know, curveballs and they're mainly, it's been individuals or, or sometimes organizations, but it's mainly been men and they've uh, tried to disband us or tried to, um, at one point we were, uh, we were called a gang of four disband Jengba, which wasn't true. We, we just decided to go back to a, a grassroots model, which was that um, only people who had somebody directly affected by joint enterprise could be part of the campaign. It was, there were outside agencies that we were learning that were trying to actually dismantle work we've said this for years that if you if they're going to put sort of police spies into um, organizations that are about anti-racism or um, environmental issues you know they're definitely going to put people in to try and address um, what we're saying that are are thousands of wrongful convictions so um, but Jimmy McGovern is our patron and he gave us some advice really early on. He's been our patron since 2010, since we launched. Start with that mantra, that anything that we know doesn't feel right, doesn't seem right, just ignore it. Don't give it oxygen, just 
step over it and keep going. And and it's partly, I think, and I think Jenna will agree with me, we've kind of maintained this, you know, like we're just normal housewives or, you know, women that are, you know, running a campaign from our kitchens and uh, or started a campaign from our kitchens and we just don't understand it. You know, it's like, which isn't true. Like Jan says, we're both intelligent women. So we understand the law and both of us can hold our own with any sort of top legal person. Um, but it has been a huge learning, cur- you know, journey. We've learned a lot through through our journey of ten years now. Um, would you agree, Jen? Yeah, I think our major o- obstacle as well has been has been the media because they wouldn't they wouldn't print the truth or, or, or all of the truth. They they take an angle that that was sensationalized and, and and one that kind of got the public on one side as opposed to the other and obviously you know we are mindful when somebody's been killed but the press aren't mindful when somebody's a miscarriage of justice and that's that and they say they're balanced but they're not balanced um and, and we, we, we after the supreme court we did manage to get um a lot of press coverage and we did as well when Jimmy McGovern's film was released and it was all very positive and then as soon as it quietens down the press then go back to the same old story again even if it's a case that they, they they've been describing as as a miscarriage of justice at one point they then go back to the kind of same kind of language that they used at the beginning so it's like you, you take one step forward and, and and then you have to take two back again because you're back to the same place. It's, it's, I, I think our biggest obstacle is, 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 is just having people tell the truth as opposed to just um, a sensational story as well. And, and the, and the other thing as well, like Gloria said, we have, a, we have, we do know that people are watching us and it's good that they're watching us because we haven't got anything to hide. We're not, we're not, we're not breaking the law. We're doing everything by the law. Um, and we're doing it because it's a moral thing to do, not not because um, because we want something bad to happen, because we want lots of murderers to get out and start walking the streets and killing people again. We're, we're, we're supporting innocent people um, and we're tackling a, a, an injustice. And so we're not doing anything wrong. And when when Gloria said about Jimmy McGovern, you know, step over it. In the early days, I spoke to Paddy Hill and I asked him if he thought my phone was bugged. And he said, you better believe it, because if it's not bugged, you're not doing it right. So on that basis, bug away, because, you know, means I'm doing something right. I think coming from Jan's words, um, I think what you said is very true about the media. When, like, before I kind of um, came into Jengba and I started kind of, like, you know, getting um, learning from Gloria and Norfis, I kind of, when I looked at articles, I kind of had a threat. When I started doing Jengba, I understood it so much better than before because like when I read articles you instantly think that if it's a group of boys like whatever it might be in the article you instantly think all of them are guilty because of the way it's worded because the way they you know lay out the mug shots they make it seem that all boys are guilty and it kind of goes into that perspective that the media and the law are hand in hand so um I think that's just a very important point to come across but yeah, I think it, I think I think as well when they that when the press report a case, and let's say for instance it's five people, um, the way that it's written, the, the public will be reading that all five must be guilty or it wouldn't be mm-hmm. at trial. So when one of them gets acquitted, there's never any explanation as to why that person was acquitted. It's kind of taken as if 
they got off with it. So mm. it's never explained to the public that the reason they didn't they did get acquitted was because they were never guilty in the first place and that they probably had a decent lawyer who actually fought for them as opposed to, you know, the other others who get found guilty don't have the right um counsel fighting for them in the way that they should be. And I, I blame a lot of the a lot of the legals with this because they've gone along with they've gone along with poor evidence. Um, and they've gone along with cases in the full knowledge that the person that they're representing hasn't actually killed anyone. And they, they are the ones that know that if they are found guilty, they will get a life sentence for murder. And most defendants, even in a murder trial, truly don't believe that they're going to end up with 25 years for life in murder, even if they're found guilty, because they don't believe they're going to be found guilty. And I think they, and I know they say ignorance is no defence, uh, but. Ignorance shouldn't be the way that you prosecute people either. You can't put people in prison because of because of a little known law and because um, because we don't understand it. Surely people go. Surely the law should be something that we all understand, especially if it's a common law. Um, common laws for the common people, and we should be able to understand it. I think it's sorry. No, I want to reiterate what Dan's saying there because actually something that's really come into the form more so now in terms of like when we've gone back to the court of appeal and when we've gone back to you know not only the supreme court but after the supreme court and our versus drug in 2016 we finally you know got back to the court of appeal and the judges have a lot to answer for absolutely have a lot to answer for i mean lord lord thomas sat on the supreme court decision and he was the one that decided that only cases that could prove substantial injustice could go back to the court of appeal and that means that there's a complete block on anyone actually getting getting their um, yeah, case heard fairly again, because like Jan said, you know, actually even the judges, when they're looking at the cases, they they cite media reports. They actually don't say, you know, they'll say it was a fueled knife attack or gang, you know, they'll they'll and and so they'll block any kind of real factual evidence as as something to prove innocence. And I asked Lord Torsten at um, a conference once, who was one of the Supreme Court judges, you know, why did you put in the substantial injustice test? And he said, because the media or the, the commentators will be saying killers are being let loose. So that means that they're, all they're concerned about is what the Daily Mail and the Sun are going to say. Well, that shouldn't be in the justice's role. It should be that they actually want to see justice is done and it's fair and it's not like, Jan said this is common law this is judge made law it's not statute so you have the most serious crime you can be convicted of which is murder and you can and and it, it, no one actually understands why they're in prison for murder serving a mandatory life sentence because the judge hasn't even made it clear and our current DPP Max Hill he was he represented a, a particular girl at court in, uh, as her defense bar at QC um emma hall and i asked him at another conference why you know he knows him as innocent and uh, he said oh well that one went cutthroat well stop cases going cutthroat <clears throat> stop people throwing people under the bus you know just so you can prove your client is innocent it's our, our justice system aren't it? it's it's a nonsense it's about it's about winning it's so adversarial it's just about winning in the court it's not about who's done what or and it's, it's just a travesty. 
Yeah, and 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 certain certain legal things that have come into the into trial processes that weren't were allowed in the past, um, like sort of bad character, um, and and hearsay. I mean, I I during our trial with with, with my son, I kept sort of wanting I wanted him to judge to say you know. Uh, not admissible that's hearsay because I didn't realize that because we you know you can use hearsay as, as evidence in a, in a joint enterprise trial I mean and that and it ends up being that's all the kind of evidence that a joint enterprise trial has foresight hearsay possibilities not factual concrete evidence and it's like over the last 20 years or so all these filtering down of the law um which we don't, we have no idea about, has, has come into effect, and that's why it's so easy to make people find people guilty of a crime that they haven't committed. And the judge sits there knowing they haven't done it, and the prosecutor knows they haven't done it, and all the defence lawyers know they haven't do- done it, and even the jury will know they haven't done it, but the jury don't know when when, when they say guilty that these people are probably going to go to prison for life. They probably think that they're going to be found guilty. Um, they're finding them guilty for whatever reason they thought that they're guilty, um, but probably don't realise that the sentence that's attached to that is massive. That is very sometimes quite shocking to still hear. I think even with it's so hard to find out the truth within these cases because, you know, some of these cases are very private, confidential. So people do rely on like the news and media for their kind of source and their truth. So that's why it takes quite a lot it's quite shocking shocking when people do realize how severe and how kind of the, the miscarriage of justice that is kind of unraveled in these cases behind closed doors and I think that's what needs to kind of be set free rather than relying on the news that actually doesn't really um contribute anything towards the truth so but yes let's move on to the next question um what is um joint enterprise aka parastic I can never, sorry, pronounce that word. Paris, paristic accessory liability, secondary liability, joint criminal enterprise, and common purpose. Do you mind explaining these um, words? Parasitic accessorial liability. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> I mean, the word parasite. I mean, what does a parasite do? It attaches itself to something else to make it go wrong, and that's basically what it is. Um, it's when they use the law to make you guilty of someone else's crime. Uh, they use a piece of it, and that that in the Jogi ruling showed us it was it was the possibility of foresight, um, and and something. I don't know whether it was may or might happen. It's just the wording and, it, you know, whether it's a may or a might or a possible and, and people have been found guilty on, on may's, mights or possibly. And that's the parasitic accessor- accessorial liability. So you're now liable um, for someone else's crime um, on the basis of you having possible foresight that serious injury may or might occur. Um, you know, I think John Crilly calls it life on Mars, doesn't he? Is there a possibility that there could be life on Mars? And it's that's a perfect way of ex- describing it because, you know, my next door neighbour may or might go out this evening and kill someone. And just because I've said they may or might go out and kill someone doesn't mean that I'm now liable because I possibly foresaw it, does it? You know, that's how big a nonsense it is. Um, but just like adding to that, I think 
so the words that sometimes those words that were kind of used when those words are used with court I think it overall confuses do you feel like it confuses the jury because I remember like Gloria once quoted to me they use these like I might be wrong like correct me if I'm wrong Gloria they use these fancy words sometimes it's quite confusing I think it would be confusing for anyone who was in jury like foresight all these kind of words do you feel like they do it to confuse people or is it just another excuse or word that they use to kind of dismiss it, um, it may I think I think using the phrases that they use is a way of them sounding extremely cl- clever and therefore correct and if you can bamboozle the jury with these fancy words then you know I, I would imagine the jury would sit there and go oh you know oh I don't understand what I mean I I've never I, I mean one of the phrases I hate the most is tacit agreement I mean what does that mean I, does anybody know what it means apart from a Q, QCR or a judge? I've never, I've never heard of a jury mem- jury coming back and passing a note to the judge and saying, can you explain what a tacit agreement is, please? Um, and and, after, and out of all the people that I've spoke to, we've, we've got someone convicted of joint enterprise. I've asked them that and they've, no, one's ever, no one's ever seen a jury pass that note up. Um, but um, I don't know, what does it mean? You know, it's, it's kind of, it's a kind of, it's sort of a loose agreement that you can perhaps do telepathically without, you know, with a wink or a nod. I don't know. It's it's a nonsense, you know. And when when someone's got a knife in their hand and they're about to murder someone, I can't imagine there would be such a thing as a as a very loose tacit agreement. It doesn't make. I mean, it, it, if it was explained in 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 clear crystal clear language to a jury that it that's what it is, then I wouldn't imagine they'd go for it. Sorry, no, I, I also think that the judiciary itself is a very sort of elitist um, organisation, well, group of people, because we haven't really moved forward in terms of legal language. And, you know, they still use language that was used in the 18th century and 19th century cases. And, and our judges will still say in terms of, you know, what is an agreement? It doesn't have to be a formal agreement. We've got numerous summings up where this is said doesn't have to be a formal agreement like Jan said it can be a nod and a wink now seriously you you can in a in a fast moving situation where somebody maybe does something out of the control of somebody else but it doesn't need to be it can just be a nod and a wink well that doesn't make any sense in anybody's anybody's mind and I did ask a really leading QC once you know like why do they use this kind of language and and he said it's because it's fascism, which it is really, in a way, if you want to kind of control people by making out that you're more superior than them. And, you know, you, you, they don't see these, especially working class BAME kids, they don't see them as human beings. They just see them as, you know, vermin, because they'll say that, you know, in their summing up, sometimes the summings up are like something out of, out of the 18th century. They're just the way, that, especially women, how they talk about women. So, you know, I think it's, it's to do with elitism. It's to do with that there's them us. The judiciary, by the way, are, you know, supposed to serve the people. It's not the other way around, but we don't allow that. We actually think that we have to serve them. You know, they are, they are above us because highly, highly educated, something like probably 90% of them went to Oxford or Cambridge or, you know, one of the, you know, private schools. They don't have any idea what it's like to live on a, on a council estate in any part of the UK. So I just think it's to do with elitism and, and that's why they keep the language like that because they don't expect the juries to ex- understand it. They don't. 
they don't want them to understand it yeah Mm -hmm. I think leading from the jury to the defendants, do you think it's also they don't want the defendants, that's why they usually tell defendants not to take the stand, is that, do you think that's a reason why they don't, they don't basically, they feel like the defendants, especially if they're quite young, they won't understand all these, you know, fancy prosecute, like, words? I I think when it comes to, when it comes to very young defendants, because the prosecutor will have leading questions where there's nothing but a yes or a no answer, um and, and 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 young people can be very honest sometimes and they can say you know if the prosecutor says were, were you you know did you know this was going to happen uh and, and and it's kind of that is a yes or no answer isn't it they might say yes because they knew there was a fight brewing but they didn't know that someone was going to get killed but they might just say yes anyway and that can get them convicted just by you know just by saying yes or no to whatever um so i would imagine um Council don't want the young people to go to the stand because of the way that these leading questions can actually put someone who's innocent in, into a predicament where it makes them sound like they're guilty when it comes to the route to verdict. So it's it, it's it's really difficult because especially when we've got the when we had parasitic accessorial liability because they were putting people in prison for the possibility of foresight. So if you put someone on the stand and they're at, and you're asking them questions like were you at the scene did you see this happen uh, were, were you with them earlier on in the day and they're answering yes to that that means they've got this foresight that this is going to happen and that's why these people have been convicted so I would imagine um, lawyers have been trying to keep them off the stand so that they don't uh, put them in that in that foresight position but at the end of the day foresight should never have been used as a reason for convicting anybody in the first place it should have been real evidence but that's all we've got that's all we have with the joint enterprise it's it's loose association to someone and foresight and it's exactly the same now as it's ever been and i don't care what anyone says it is because now instead of using foresight on its own they 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 couple that up with a gang narrative um and it, it it still gets you still get the convictions that they used to get um, so moving on to the next question, um, what has been your biggest success so far in the campaign and how do you see your success or lack of it? I believe our biggest success is the fact that we're still going. Um, you know, we're, we're up against the legal establishment is probably one of the most powerful institutions in this country. And they won't accept that they got the law wrong. We didn't get the law wrong. In 2016, in the Supreme Court decision on versus Jogi, they accepted the law had taken a wrong turn 34 years ago. So you've got three over three decades of wrong law because they were relying on foresight, not on intention. What, where, when people think, you know, someone has to have the mind to kill, mens rea. And they, they ignored that. They just relied on foresight that you knew someone else was going to do something. So they accepted the law was wrong. And we thought that was a big victory. I mean, we, we were jumping up and down and crying and thinking, wow, everyone's going to get you know, a chance to go back to the court of appeal. And, you know, they snuck in the, the substantial, only cases that can prove substantial injustice could go back to the court of appeal. So for every sort of success we've championed, they claw it back by, you know, saying, that, well, and the only reason they did that, you know, they did that was because there were too many cases, because he said it, Lord Thomas said it, it was too many cases going back to the court of appeal, because if you get convicted of murder and you haven't committed murder, you're going to try to appeal it. And that was a cost. That's all he said, who's going to pay for it. So all these cases going back to the court of appeal, they had to stop it. And that's what they did. They did that by um, 
accepting that the law had been wrong for 32 years, 34 years rather, but that only in, uh, you know, that, that that doesn't mean anyone can go back to, to appeal because nobody has except John Crilly. So because trial judge Lord Leveson actually said, I know you did not share the same intention as your co-defendant. So he'd actually said he had no intent. So that's a jokey point. We can go back and say, well, you know, he had to, John kind of had to accept manslaughter. He regrets that kind of in a way now because he thinks he should have fought and maybe set precedent for everybody else. But, but he, 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 you know, but we, we'll still, you know, we're still fighting. We won't, uh, we won't stop because the, the, I think the, the main thing, uh, oh, we're right. We know we are right. They have locked put people away in prison for mandatory life sentences averaging 25 years for crimes they didn't commit and we know we're right and we know we're morally right as well so you know you can't measure that on a success scale no that we won't stop because they're wrong and we're right Jan, do you have I don't know I, I, I suppose I, yeah I mean people people say to us that what we have done is is amazing because we did make legal history but nothing nothing's happened nothing's come of it you know what I mean it's all words isn't it um but I think I, I think our greatest success really is all of those people who would have been convicted without us otherwise because I know at least two people um at least two that in the last six months two young people who would have been in prison for life now if it wasn't for Jangba. So we've saved at least, I, I know I've saved at least two people from going to prison, but there must be lots of them. There must be lots because they come to us and ask us questions and ask for information. And because they can Google us and because they can, they can find out this information, they can take that with them and maybe get the case dismissed before it gets too late. So we've saved people's lives, I think. I think that's our great success, but we don't actually know whose lives they are. <clears throat> We don't know who, who they are, uh, and I don't care. It doesn't matter if we don't know who they are. I just like the idea that there could be 100 young people out there who are now not in prison for life because of what, what Jane was done. That's um, always an incredible thing to... It's a big admiration as well, so I have huge respect for both of you because of that. Um, and I think also kind of... I think when you think of, like, joint enterprise, it's links to the next question. You instantly always kind of think of men or young boys who have been convicted under it and um, recently the woman's report was released and um, would you guys mind explaining the success and the awareness that the woman's report has um, had since its launch? I, I think it's really really important to say that everybody's cases is as important and male cases and female cases are valid you know as important as each other but the thing about, you know, what we would, we've learned and Jan and I, before lockdown, you know, we'd go all over the country talking to students and, and at universities and, you know, we'd always cite women's cases because they, they're just, they were just balmy, you know, like, you, 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 you know, the stereotype, typical kind of joint enterprises, like you said, it's going to be a group of young men um, and we had a report that there was dangerous associations that um, Becky Clark and Patrick Williams did back in 2015 I think that report was released and that was about racism in the in, in joint enterprise cases but Becky is now you know she's a general campaigner as well well she's not she's an academic but she's you know very concerned about people wrongfully convicted so you know she then 
wanted to look at some of the women's cases because kept saying they're balmy, they're just nuts, you know, like, and that report that she did into our cases, she looked into nearly 90 women's cases and not one of them was instrumental in actual direct violence, not one, but they're all serving life sentences for murder. So that, those kind of, and reports from academic of, you know, of Becky and Patrick's stature is, is so important for us because, you know, we can keep moaning about, you know, a woman who's uh, in the bath when her husband downstairs and she's serving a 30 years sentence for his murder. Um, you know, we, we can tell anecdotally all these things, but they into a, something like Women's Hour is, is, is so important for moving the campaign. You know, it's this thing we talk about, it's chipping away. And the women's, women's issues are very important because you are getting women acquitted um, via coercive control. And a lot of our women are, have very difficult backgrounds and lives. And, and Harriet Wischief, who's the QC and runs um, the Women's Justice Group, she, she, I argue, you know, I'm very pleased Sally Channing got um, her uh, conviction for murder quashed um you, you know the even though she did actually murder her husband but um i said but you know we've got a girl who's looking for her shoes in a car park and she lady haylett said no she was guilty of a murder because of conditional intent you know so even though she hasn't actually touched the victim didn't even know the victim had died and it's these kind of decisions that you can go and go well hang on how can a woman quash because of coercive control where a girl who's looking for shoes in a car park is guilty of a murder that happened six minutes later that she hasn't actually participated in and and her appeal was rejected so it's a it's a very much easier way to kind of like pick apart how bad joint enterprise is by looking at women's cases um the children's cases are just tragic i mean we've got a girl that was only 13 when she was given a a life sentence and a boy we've got a boy that was 13 we're the only country in europe to send children to prison for life so um you know we, we part of our campaign uh aims at objective is definitely to get rid of child life as no no child regardless of what they've done should be sent to a prison for life they should they you know if, if a child has done something as bad as as a murder they need absolute help they need they need psychiatric help not sticking in a cell for at the moment, some of our 17-year-old kids are in cells for five days on at a time because our families are telling us that they're not being let out, even to have a, a shower or a phone call for five days at a time because of the lockdown. And that's just that's not a port, you know. Yeah, I think as well with the women's cases, if the women's report showed us that there were there were 109 women in this country now serving life, you know, because of joint enterprise, like Gloria said, none of them had actually committed the murder and none of them have even engaged in, in violence <clears throat> towards the victim at all, didn't lay a finger on the victim. If you think about it, if it was the 1960s, that would have been 109 women that would have been put to death. And I think in a very short space of time, that would have been an awful lot of women got, getting the death penalty. Um, and I think everyone in this country would then start to ask questions as to why so many people were being hung on, on, on what would probably be a monthly basis. 109 women in the last 15 years would have been hung uh, and people would want to know why. And if they'd found out that the reason that they'd been hung was because they were in the same room and their partner 
hit someone over the head with something and killed them, or they were having a bath when someone knocked on the door and killed their partner. Um, and it wouldn't last, it wouldn't happen, it wouldn't be allowed. But because they're just getting life sentences, people seem to think, oh, that's all right, they'll be out in half, or you know what I mean? But the gravity is a life sentence is a living death sentence in a way because you never get your life back. And I think the important thing with, with, the, with women as well, if you say it like that, these women would be dead now. Questions would be asked as to why so many women in this country were classed as murderers and needed the death penalty. But it's almost, when you take the death penalty away, it allows for greater injustices to happen behind closed doors that people don't know about and aren't aware about. I think what you said about living death, I think that is itself very, it's a powerful saying, definitely. And it, it really does kind of get you to call it's, they literally, I mean, they're still alive, but they're physically not there with their families. And I think that itself is very heartbreaking and it really does, it is like they're living death rather than yeah. living. Yeah, um, well, as, as, as humans and as, as women, they'll, they'll never be anyone ever again apart from murderers. And that, that, is a, that is a terrible stigma for anyone to have to live with um, and for their families to live with. And if they've got children, you know, they're the children of a murderer. It, it's, it's, it's wicked. And, and yet these, these women and, and the men that we support and the, and the boys, they're not murderers. And yet their entire families and their entire life has to live with that stigma. And, it's not, and it isn't, isn't them that have done it. It's like they say, it's like it, it doesn't it doesn't just affect one person, it affects everyone involved, everyone who knows them, everyone who's dear to them. And I think that itself is it's never just one person, it's a it's a whole crowd of people that are linked to linked to it for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And which kind of moves yeah. us to the next I think, question. I think I'm more the public sorry, can I just add one last point to that? Yeah, what yeah, the public aren't aware of. We've got women who have done what we call what we think is the right thing one is one was Laura Mitchell and the other one was Emma Hall so I've mentioned both those two cases Emma Hall went to the police the next day to say look I've been I was in a coercive situation I had to drive this lunatic I think I don't know what's happened to this man she took the police to where she saw that he'd, he'd dumped the body they then arrest her and charge her with joint enterprise murder even though she's done the right thing by alerting the pre police um, Laura Mitchell did exactly the same thing. She took herself to the police station the next day when she heard that someone had been killed in the car park that, and, and said, well, we were involved in an altercation at the beginning about a taxi. Then they charge her and Michael at the police station with joint enterprise murder. So, you know, you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If, if, if the police, it, it, and it's much easier to get a conviction if it's a group. It's much easier because you don't have to point out who did what. You just say they're all in it together. Use the gang narrative and, you know, and it doesn't matter if you know you're an innocent girl like Laura was with a three-year-old son. Yeah, and, and it's all it's also much easier to convict five people of murder than it is to convict one of manslaughter. Yeah. So rather than rather than try and convict one person of manslaughter when that's what's actually happened, for a prosecutor, it's easier to do five for murder. That's what's bizarre. It's like one person, I remember reading a case where one boy got 21 years for life for killing two people and admitted to admitted to it but then you have a group of five six boys each getting 25 21 years it doesn't really make much sense it there's no it's just confusing and I know obviously it's different but it's just it doesn't make any sense to why they're getting life 
but then someone who's so it feels like if you singly hand like single hand handedly murder someone you get less than yeah, you get you, uh, you, you would get you would get yeah well you, 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 you would get a, a guilty plea yeah you get a lot less for murdering your own child than than for not murdering a stranger that that's, that sounds absolutely nuts but yeah a what a, a single handed murder never gets the, the length of length of tariff that that the joint enterprise cases get and and they're the people that were just maybe at the scene and didn't lay a finger on anyone and that that really shows that there is no consistency in our legal system at all no, or in this are in the sentencing policies there's no there's no consistency at all no definitely not and I think when you mentioned the gang narrative it leads to the next question about because I think the gang narrative relies it is like the bread of it is systematic racism and um, it is really important to discuss the systematic racism joint enterprise cases like would you both mind explaining why it's such a big issue especially in gang narratives and how how it can actually be tackled if you were to go to do the right by it rather than continuously use it as like a foundation obviously it's quite subtle and it's not really subtle but it's subtle in court maybe I'm wrong but it's there it's always there especially when it's a group of young boys or yeah especially if it's a group of young boys that the gang narrative is forced on um so yeah would you mind explaining what your thoughts are on that well I think I I mean we track the origins of joint enterprise back to the 17th century and dueling but then you know it was last kind of used with um, Derek Bentley in the in the late fifties, uh, the last man how in this country was was um, a joint enterprise case, but um, we kind of believe that come you know the sort of the two thousand and five two thousand and six when politicians want to be seen to be tough on crime, and they start talking about black on black crime and they started talking about feral Britain and broken Britain. And this is just policy. This is actually policy to try and be seen to be, you know, the the uh, the better lawmakers because you're tough on crime and and so um, you know they had things like Trident formed and Excalibur in the north and and you know to look at these gang related you know activities and joint enterprise was a, a absolutely brilliant sledgehammer for that you know. It, when when Ken went to prison, because and his him and his co defendants were all black, I instinctively thought, well, that's got to be racism. If you put five black boys in the dock and you 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 know, and it goes cutthroat, which is very common in a lot of these multi-handed cases, that the cutthroat means that people will start blaming each other because the lawyers are trying off, so they'll blame put the blame more on on what I call the Caspers in the case, the ones that have got the least evidence against them. Um, they they then you know really ratcheted up in terms of young black people and and becky and patrick bought um dangerous associations uh, they, they actually struggled to get racism in that it was like they wanted to say race and they said no it's racism it's absolutely racism and when we first started the campaign we we sent in a questionnaire to um prisoners but we didn't ask them about ethnicity because it wasn't something because we're grassroots it wasn't something we instinctively knew it was racist but we didn't know you know to what extent it was and then you know over the years when we kind of identified that racism was a, a huge part of joint enterprise 
we did then ask about ethnicity and um, we haven't got the correct data yet. We're getting it, but the large number of our cases from BAME communities are large. It probably it's going to be over seventy percent. But um, that you know, there was another report was done by uh, BAME crew and Susie over hundred uh, people who'd been given a mandatory life sentence at a young age, and fifty uh, percent of those um, were. Um, joint enterprise. So that was the first kind of thing that these mandatory sentences were given out to joint enterprise prisoners. But 40% of them were black, not BAME, black. And that was so important. That was such important piece of data that went to than it is any, you know, anything else. And and that did lead to that Justice Select Committee decision that it was leading to miscarriages of justice. So, you know, we do need more data. We do need but the MOJ hide behind the fact that there isn't any data, but it, it's clearly racist. It's clearly racist. We've had a note from a juror saying she was, he was in a, um, a situation where the foreman of the jury was making very racist remarks about the people in the dock, and and he and and he was a a, um, a deputy head of a school, but he was you know saying, oh, I know what these black kids are like. They're all they're all in it together, and you know it's just those assumptions that you don't need to prove what someone else has done but just you know convicted by the color of their skin and it's definitely moved into the the muslim community over the last couple of few years it was definitely uh, it's something that's you know targeting young asian boys much much more than than it was previously um but we're in the middle of, you know we are collating our data because like we said we've got over a thousand cases um mm. I mean, they've got targets. Yeah. The police have got targets and they have for a long time, haven't they? So, you know, who, who they're going to arrest and who they're going to charge and stuff like that. And I think it's almost like what they consider the lowest denominator. Um, so if, if you know, if we've got racism in this country and, and, and people don't care about black people and then you get the press describing black people as if they're gang members and they're, you know, something to be afraid of then you churn that out and the public believe it don't they and they and, and and if the public believe it you keep churning it out more and more and you keep feeding you know feeding them that oh it's all right we're cleaning up the streets from these gang members these terrible people that you're all afraid of but the reality is it's, it isn't it isn't always the case you know it's not you know if there's if there's so if there's been so many gang members in this country running rife where they should all be in prison now, shouldn't they? Shouldn't it all be over? Shouldn't we have captured them all and put them all in prison? Um, but but at the end of the day, if you look at it and look at it properly, if, if there are gangs in this country and they are dealing drugs and they are allowing people to get murdered because of that, then you go to the top and you find out who's doing it and you don't go at the bottom level, um, you know, to kids who are, who, are, who are running around and finding trying to find themselves and perhaps getting themselves in, in, into trouble um, just to make a bit of fast money, you, you go to you go to the top and, and dismantle it that way. Yeah, you don't, I think it's one of the. Know. Yeah, we do we do ask that question. You know, was the gang narrative used in your trial? And 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 repeatedly, people say yes, but they weren't a gang member. They were just you know. And we know the police make up always. I mean, we're not naive. There are gangs out there, but you know, they, there was one case in West London where I live, where there was a 240 strong gang that was called Kill Them Pussies that nobody's ever heard of. So, you know, and it's it was just, 
And one mum had to, to, to try and defend the fact that her three sons were all members of this gang that none of them had ever heard of and none of them were gang members, but they were all black. Yeah. I mean, the gang narrative was tried to be used in ours and it, and it was quite laughable because it was like, what are these? It's the Scooby-Doo gang. You know, these they were they were children, and they used to play on a park and go fishing. And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, they're, they're gang members, and it's like gang members of what? You know, I mean, where I live, it's you know, the only gangs you'd have around here are they're like, I don't know, you wouldn't have any. Just as, certainly not fifteen-year-olds in a in a in a a criminal gang. But and, and because it was so stupid, they had the judge had to throw it out. But. If they'd been five black boys, I'm sure the jury would, they'd have carried on feeding it into the jury's mind and they'd have gone along with it. And it was written all over the newspapers as well. You know, I mean, my son was blind, you know, he would have been a, you know, blind leading, you know, blind leading the blind in that case. It just, you know, it's just, you have to see it to believe it. You know, when you read the front, the headlines of a newspaper and the story that's read there, and then if you read, a judge's summing up and the paperwork, you would think that they were two different cases. And, yeah. and I can say that a lot about, about a lot of cases. You wouldn't recognise the case from the newspaper from the reality of the case. So the, the public are being lied to. And, and, and if anyone believes what's written in half the newspapers these days, you believe it, then, you know, good luck to you. And don't forget, Jan, we went to the British Library around Jan's uh, son's case uh, and what was going on in the prime and the son were calling for the death penalty. They said, 100% of you want this. There's a lot of, a lot. they had a petition actually, the son had a petition to bring back the death penalty. So this has come from the likes of Murdoch, you know, the idea that we, we need to lock them up and throw away the key for young kids, um, especially, you know, young black kids from states that, you know, we, prison's too good for them let's just either um i think a particular individual said you know like, I'll, I'll i'll pull a lever if it's hanging i'll press the button if it's uh um the electric chip yeah yeah i'll administer the lethal injection that was a lovely one wasn't it yeah mm. But yeah. that, that, that they, you know but people feed children. in feed, people feed into that hysteria don't they and you know, I mean, I've actually met people who I've read stories about about me and my son, and then maybe two, three years later, I've actually met them, and they've said it's happened to my son now. I actually didn't believe a word you were saying at the time, but now it's happened to my son, and then apologised, even though I didn't know them. <laughs> you know, um, but it's it's too much to find out once it's happened to your son. You should you should find out about it now. You should know about it now before it happens to yours. And kind of with that, I think in court, um, possibly you probably know a few cases that might have had this situation. Do you agree when um, offend like defendants um, are getting told to take the um, to take the guilty verdict to increase the outcome of their conviction um, we are getting we are getting stories of people being told that um they should take a lesser plea so go guilty to manslaughter but they, it doesn't happen that much because people want they're going for the murders and they know they can get multiples for murder um but it, it, it's a very much the american model where people take a lesser plea because they know they won't get a mandatory life 
So, you know, we are, the mandatory life sentence does make it much more difficult for people to see, um, you know, to fight for their innocence because yeah. they know they're looking at and, and, and I think a, a plea bargain's wrong anyway because a plea bargain for one, uh, you know, you, you you can have a lesser sentence if you if you if you plead to a, a lesser offence, but then you got to shop, grass your mate up for that what they've done. But it's not always grassing your mate up for what they've done. You'll say anything. You'd say anything if someone if 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 it was put on the table that you're either doing twenty five years plus, or you know plead guilty to manslaughter and sit and, and tell us what we want to hear and we'll give you six years. Any eighteen year old would do that. So it's wrong to actually offer that to anybody, but anybody who's completely and utterly innocent and truly believes that the law will find them innocent wouldn't take any form of plea bargain because they would actually have trust in the law. Um, and that's a sad thing because they shouldn't have any trust in the law because at the moment it's, it's broken it's broken, and you can't trust it. Uh, but you certainly, I, I would never recommend anybody to go for plea bargains because we really don't want to go down that route. Because we'd find we'd find people going to prison because someone had taken a bargain. Um, someone else will go to prison for longer. Um, it just opens the door for more corruption, I think. And we're corrupt enough as we are. We don't need any more of that. Um, so, getting to near um, end of the podcast, um, I think more of a hopeful questions. Um, do you both think that you'll ever get justice and see the end of joint enterprise law being used? Yes, win, but a case of winning, actually. I think Jan and I would both agree that over the years we've learned that it's not just joint enterprise that's falling within our justice system. A whole justice system needs a root and branch, whatever, overhaul. It, we, you know... It, thinking that we've got a different justice system to the one that we had in the 18th century is a nonsense we don't we have exactly the same kind of um you know we don't send people to australia anymore but actually uh, it's probably a better option than actually locking them up and giving them a living in death from a really age so um joint enterprise will be exposed as something you know in the future we'll be looking back in it i think and just people will go they did what? You know, the same way we look back and think they, we used to dunk uh, witches or drown witches because we thought they were um, women because we thought they were witches. But, you know, that just seems so uh, bizarre now. But when you talk about joint enterprise and the fact that it locks up families, you know, we've got sisters, we've got a mum and her two sons, we've got brothers, we've got, you know, we've got whole families, a dad and his son that spent 12 years in jail together. Uh, in the same cell 12 years in the same cell with your dad can you imagine that I mean you know it is it, it is something that is so abhorrent that, that that's partly you know one of the huge barriers of it that people just don't want us to uh, be able to expose it even when the women's report was was came out Becky was very surprised at the press kind of reaction to it she said they would just they wouldn't talk about women's you know, talk to women's families because they were the they were the families of murderers, and it's like, well, you're not getting it. This proves that they're not that. So it's it, this huge obstacle still to come, but up, and they know we won't give up. You know, um, and I hope in my lifetime, 
we see it um, abolished. I mean, we have got a law coming up, which is the Joint Enterprise Bill, which Charlotte Henry did after her brother's case was thrown out of the Court of Appeals. So um, she's a lawyer now. We've been the bill is to try and get rid of the substantial injustice test because that means people can go back to the court of appeal have had the right to appeal a conviction for murder when they haven't murdered anybody so um that that's one of our big goals in the future and if we can get that through the house of lords and maybe get that um through stat you know made law then then um people will have the right to appeal but as with everything it's 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 a system it's a fee and task and it takes forever and you know it's really not fair i mean jack's son and my son well my son's friend um have both come to the end of their sentence now you know but they never needed to send a, you know spend a life do a life sentence in prison either of them did and um but you know they're, they're, but there are too many of them now we've got we've got far too many it's one of the first things that jan and i when we first met we said there's just too many it's, you know you know we're not making this up there's thousands of people in prison that shouldn't be there and you know the cost to the public purse is, is huge it's huge um so yeah that's that's the sort of future for jenga that we just yeah. keep fighting i think I think over the years that, you know, we all, you know, we say we always think that the judges are really intelligent people and, and perhaps they have got morals. I think what we've worked out is that they're not very intelligent and they absolutely have no morals whatsoever. Uh, and because of that, they pass this on. They pass this immoral injustices on over and over again. And, and I think what, what, we've, what we've managed to do, what me and Gloria and Jemba have managed to do is we've got students engaged, we've got young people who want to be the lawyers of the future and obviously the lawyers, the, the judges of the future. So, you know, um, if we can pass on this, some morals to them before the system itself makes them corrupt and immoral, then maybe that's the way out. Maybe then, maybe the, the, you know, the lawyers, the barristers, the QCs, the judges of the future, the ones who know what's going on now and, and, and actually feel like it's wrong, will go into their future careers and, 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 and make the changes because the moment our government is, is just vile and they're not mm. interested in, in, in changing people's lives and changing the justice system because it doesn't, it's not sexy enough to the, to the voter. Um, they, they'd rather... You know, they'd rather get votes on the basis that, that you know, certain inner cities are full of scumbags and they're going to lock them all up um, rather than, you know, let, let, let's do re prison reform and make people's lives better. Uh, but hopefully, you know, the, the young people that we engage with uh, have got enough morals and enough energy to do something about it, that, that do something that we can't do. And we've also, we've set up, um, this is, we're in our fourth year of the Joint Enterprise Appeals Project, <laughs> which is something we set up with all the universities um, by giving them our cases and um, with the consent, obviously, of prisoners, because no one's looking, you know, appeal lawyers, there's no money in appeals, so nobody can really have an effective appeal. I tell this to families all the time, even if they won the lottery right now, you know, they're not going to let anyone through because they don't want to set precedent. But the Joint Enterprise Appeals Project has been a really useful tool for, like Jan said, for you know practitioners for the future who um, won't go into the justice system thinking that it's all rosy and that um, you know it's fair. 
they'll go in there thinking, well, while we have something like joint enterprise as, as appalling as joint enterprise to convict people of the most serious crimes, then we haven't got a fair justice system. And uh, this, we're in our fourth year and we're gonna build on Jeep. We're gonna get more universities involved. There's lots of law departments and law students out there that need to get involved and, and apply to us to be part of the Jeep, Jeep 5 next year. Amazing. Um, thank you for letting us know all the future plans for Jengba. It was really good to um, talk to you both, to see who you are as people and the court, why you're fighting for this cause. So um, thank you for everyone joining in and listening and hope to see you in the next episode. Thank you, Gloria. Thank you, Jan. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. I'm not guilty by association. I'm not guilty. J.E. not guilty by association. I'm not guilty. J.E. not guilty.